Okay, so here's what we're doing today. Um, I'm going to bring up the passage again. This is our passage, and there's, there's not like this real profound thing that happens on the surface. I would argue there's lots of little profound things happening under the surface. And so what I've done, what I've done today is I've Frankensteined a sermon together from three separate things that are happening here that are just below the surface, that are cultural, that are interesting, that I find interesting. Um, it's the kind of stuff that Bible scholars go nuts over, okay? Um, and the stuff you don't get to hear very often. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a little bit of seminary here today. Um, and I have three sermonettes, homilies, if you will, Okay? Just consider me Ira Glass. Welcome to This American Life. <laughs> act one. Okay, Priscilla and Aquila. This is act one. Here we go. Um, now, uh, if you ever do character studies on people in the scriptures, um, you can pull out all kinds of interesting facts based upon their name, where they're from, uh, the way that they talk, the, the Greek words that, they, that, are, that they're recorded as saying, um, all kinds of things. But today we're going to start off with a bit of a character study here on Priscilla and Aquila. Um, and then we're going to look at Paul here gets a haircut. We're going to talk about why. Many of us need haircuts after the year that we've had. Um, and I think my barber thinks I died. <laughs> Should probably drop him a line. Um, and, then, uh, and, then, and then after that, we're going to talk about uh, this, little, this little message here about Paul going to Jerusalem for some reason. And we're going to talk about that. Um, so these three things. Uh, so let me open us up in a word of prayer. And uh, let's dive into this passage, shall we? Father. Be here and present with us. Calm us. Help us to understand that this is not a concert. This is not a show. This is not some um, sort of thing to make us emotional or to feel good or whatever. It may do all of that, and that's fine, and we welcome that. But um, ultimately, we are a people. We are a community, and we gather here to recenter ourselves on what brings us together. We don't come together because of... um, any kind of cultural things. We don't come together because we even, because we agree on things. We come together because we are your body, because we come to the table, the body and the blood, and, uh, and we need it. And we need each other. We need people with us. We need people crawling towards you with us. And so um, as we make our attempts to fashion ourselves in your image this morning, I pray that you would be present and that you would help to make us holy. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so this passage gives us another glimpse at a couple we've already seen once, if you look at this entire passage, there's this... So Bible scholars are oftentimes when they're reading a passage, they're looking for something called an inclusio. If you've heard of this idea, it's, uh, it's, it's something sort of like... It, it acts as bookends of a passage. There's this phrase that happens, and then there's this passage, and then that phrase happens again at the end, as, to, as if to say it starts here, and it ends here, and all of this is about one thing. Um, this whole passage is sort of an inclusio about about these two, Priscilla and Aquila. They're on the first verse, they're on the last verse. Uh, there's this overarching thing, and a lot more study could be done here amongst ourselves about what's going on with these, with these two, what they represent in the passage, what they, um, how they sort of enter onto the scene as Luke portrays them. Um, and we're not going to do a lot of that this morning, but there's some things I want to point out. First off, I want to talk about their social location. We all have a social location from which we read the Bible, from which we uh, move throughout the world and talk about God. They had one as well. Um, they are our very first missionary couple in the church that we know of. Um, up until this point, <clears throat> I wore my voice out and a little dry, so I may, I may get quieter. Up until this point, <clears throat> uh, every minister of the gospel has been single. It's been men, it's been women, but it's, they've, all, they've all been single. 
Um, the, as I've said before, the vast majority of the early church was celibate, and they were single, and they lived together. The only people that were getting married in the early church were the people that wanted to have children. Those are the only people getting married in the early church because everything sort of told a picture, told a story of of God and Israel, and these are Jewish Christians, and this is what they're doing. And so they're all single, but, but here we have this interesting thing, which is a couple, we don't look at it as interesting, we look at it as normal today, it's a couple traveling, doing missionary work together. Um, in the ancient world, it was well understood that, that single people have more ability to be flexible to the needs of those around them. Um, they can move, they can pick up and take off at any moment in time. They require less money. They, uh, it's just a different way of existing. They're more able to pivot and change uh, the circumstances of their lives in order to sort of accommodate the mission. And so single people were vital to the ancient world, uh, to, to the texts of, of the ancient world, um, to the church. And so if you're here, I kind of wanted to talk about this for, uh, give, give it a couple minutes to talk about singleness, okay? Um, if you are here and, and, and you are single, you are, I want you to know, you are likely far more capable of following um, the mission that God is on, of taking part in it, of doing the work of ministry. You're probably far more capable of it than any of us married people are. And I just want you to notice. I, w- I want you to feel empowered in that way. Um, you have an ability um, to pivot and change and adjust and adapt in ways that the rest of us do not who are married. You have an advantage in the ministry. You can go anywhere at any time, um, and you don't need to stay in one place with people relying upon you and your work and your money or anything like that. You have this freedom and this ability that you really should recognize in this moment in your life. You have everything that you need to be full, happy, holy, and to follow Christ. You aren't lacking anything. You are every bit as equipped as every one of the apostles. Only one of them was married that we know of. Um, uh, Jesus was not married. Um, The vast majority of the church was unmarried as well. You are in that company. Okay, I, I want you to know just how free you are to actually serve God in your status and in your place. Um, You have everything you need. Your relationships that you have with other single people in your life can be equally as deep and meaningful as any marriage relationship. When you look at the Bible, you you see David, you see Jonathan, and they have this deep, intimate relationship where they know each other. And they are that we talked about this last week, faithfulness to each other. Um, and there's certain people all throughout church history who would, who would open up and say, hey, I just want you to know I am with you, I am for you at any point in your life when you need me, I am there, okay? Um, making these sort of vows and commitments to each other. And so your single relationships, um, you don't need to consider them lacking. You don't have to. Um, God doesn't think you're missing out. God isn't sitting there going, oh, I, I really hope they meet someone soon. I have work for them, but they can't do it yet. None of that's happening, okay? You are ready. You are there. Um, God has provided the humans in your life already to meet your relational needs. If you aren't married, um, you're good. It's okay. Paul says this several times in the scripture to different people. And then he also talks to married people as well about maybe you should get married, maybe you shouldn't. But there is no requirement, there is no expectation that any of them would be. If you are married, I want to speak to you for a second too. I want you to know you need single people in your life. You need them. You need them at your dinner tables. You need them at your holiday festivities. Um, You need to spend time out with them at their house. You need them in your life. Um, They can serve the community in a way that you cannot. They can see things that you cannot. Um, They're on the outside that can speak to things of of how maybe uh, you may not be self-aware that you are unable to, even as a couple. Um, Single people have a central role at the table. They always should. They should be in leadership. They should be in every part of every church. We've always worked to try to keep single people in leadership. Um, for some reason, I think it's because of cultural expectations. Um, they, they tend to, right now, with the mindset, not last as long. And I, and I think there's no reason for that. I think that should change. Um, 
I, I, I think we need to have and, and cultivate a deeper understanding and appreciation for the role that free unmarried people play in our communities. I think we need to realize this. There, there, there should not be this constant expectation that everyone has to, where's the person? You have to find yourself and find this other person that's going to complete you. You are complete. You are lacking nothing. God is with you. God is ahead of you. God has prepared work for you to do. And so if you're sitting around doing nothing with your life, waiting and wondering, like, no, I'm just waiting to meet somebody, don't waste it. You, you have the ability to do things right now that you will never have again. And so I encourage you to do that. Explore that. Okay, back to these two. Um, they were a refugee couple. They, they were Jew, a Jewish couple. They lived in uh, the city of Rome originally. Um, around the year, I think it was 51, I think, 51 or so, um, the emperor, I think it was Caligula, again, not positive, I need to get my facts straight, uh, he banished all the Jewish people from uh, the city of Rome. All of them, no matter, no matter who you were, you're st- you were out. So the, they, they kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome, and so they're leaving, and, and they have nowhere to go. And so Priscilla and Aquila um, pack up everything, and they which wouldn't have been much. It would have been like a bag, like you're wearing everything you have and you're carrying everything you have. You leave everything else there. And they come and meet with Paul and they decide to travel with Paul. Um, And so they're not concerned with their own self-preservation. This was a very dangerous thing to do. This is dangerous work. They're not concerned though about self-preservation. They're willing to face the cost of discipleship with Paul, whatever it may be, they're ready. Um, They have an occupation as well to support themselves. They are tent makers. Now we know from our studies in Paul, uh, that tent making was a low uh, status occupation. It was looked down upon. In fact, any kind of work done with your hands in the ancient world was considered um, low, low status, shameful. You didn't want to do it. And people, um, people specifically looked down upon linen workers, especially those from Tarsus, where Paul was from. Um, and so you have this thing where you have all these Christians, like Paul even, who have high status in the community, but choose to do lowly work as Christians, and we're going to talk about why in a bit. I, um, there's a lot more to, when you look at the, at the ancient, the, the lives of the apostles, there's a lot more to their lives than looking at it and saying, oh, Paul was bivocational, and so I should be bivocational. Possibly, you're missing the point. Um, Paul was a tent maker because it's the worst thing you could possibly be. And Paul was a Pharisee, which is the best thing you could possibly be. And so what we have is a guy at the top saying, I met this guy named Jesus. Uh, and he turned my whole life upside down, uh, literally. And so now I, my work I do is no longer at the top, it's at the bottom. My status in the eyes of everyone around me is, is at the bottom. The way you look at me uh, is, is, will, will never be the same because I met Jesus. And so he, he flips his entire life and gives up all his status, all his, um, all his honor, all of it. Um, and so their religion, they, they were Jewish. Again, they were persecuted, oppressed by Gentiles, um, but what was Paul's mission? Paul's mission was to plant churches that were both Jewish and Gentile together. And so you have Priscilla and Aquila who are purposely already being persecuted by the Gentiles by being kicked out of Rome, losing their house, losing all of their money, everything. They go find Paul. The way they respond to persecution from the Gentiles is by joining Paul in his mission to bring together Jews and Gentiles. You see what the Christians are doing. They don't fit anywhere. They are so weird, like so bizarre. Um, that word weird could translate to holy. That's what that, like holy, hagios, means different. It means set apart. It, it really does speak to this. This is what the Christians were doing. They really believed themselves to be a holy, set apart people. They weren't concerned with who was oppressing them. They were still going to minister to them and plant a church in their name and with them. Um, 
And then I want to talk about this, this woman, Priscilla, one of the earliest known Christian converts who lived in Rome. Um, a fascinating uh, woman. Her and Aquila are believed to have taught Paul about Jesus. So Paul has this vision. Um, he meets Jesus on the road, and he's blind, and he goes to meet with the Christians afterwards, uh, and he spends time there. Um, we're pretty sure that it was, it was Aquila, I'm sorry, Priscilla, that, that taught Paul most of, and there's, there's a, a lot of evidence to this, and it's possible that she's even the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. I tend to think it was, it could have been Phoebe, um, seems more qualified to me, but, but um, a lot of scholars believe that possibly Hebrews was written by her, and the reason there's no name in it um, is because then it would have lost its authority as a letter. So she literally gives up, even, even just like Paul, gives up her status and her honor and what is rightfully hers, which is her name on this brilliant letter of Hebrews, and gives it up so that it will be non-offensive as it moves along the Jewish, amongst the Jewish men. Like what these Christians were doing was nuts. They didn't care. They didn't need praise. They didn't need um, recognition of any kind. Very different from how we live today. Um, she's often thought, again, to be the first example of, the female, of a female preacher or teacher in the early, ch- in early church history. And the fact that she's mentioned first here in this passage, her and then her husband are mentioned, that speaks to the authority with, and reputation with which the early church really looked at her. She was a very high-honored woman in the church. Low-honored in the community, high-honored in the church. Um, and perhaps that's how it should be anyways amongst the ancient Christians. Like, that's probably how they wanted things to be. Um, so there's a lot to glean there from who this couple is and what they were doing. They were willing to just enter, like, throw it all away, reputation, money, location, like, privilege all of it and join in the mission of God to the very end Um, and as you read them like picture all this in your mind as like you can almost hear like their soft voices and the way that they would respond to people never they would never be offended they would they they don't seem like the kind of people who would ever snap it they just seem like these the presence of Christ in your midst all the time and so there's a lot there for us to gleam and to read about and to study. Spend some time with Priscilla and Aquila this week in your studies. So, that's Act 1. Act 2, Paul's haircut. Here we go. Um, there's this random passage here in Acts 18, 18b. It says, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at King Crea because of a vow that he had taken. So, Paul leaves Corinth and he sails to King Crea, um, and he goes there. And before he sets sail from there... He cuts his hair um, because of a vow that he had made. Now, um, when a Jewish man um, wanted to particularly thank God for something that had happened in their life, something they were like, just very, very thankful for, for some blessing they received, they took what's called a Nazarite vow. You can read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. It goes for about 21 verses. Verse one, chapter one, uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. It tells all the things that, that go along with the Nazarite vow. There's certain ways that you need to behave, um, certain things you can do and can't do, uh, things you can touch and can't touch. But on top of that, um, it basically, if it was carried out in full, it also meant that for 30 days you didn't eat meat, you didn't uh, drink any wine, and you allowed your hair to grow, um, which 30 days, I don't feel like it's going to get very long. But maybe his diet was different than mine. Um, and, and so Paul does this, and there's likely two reasons that Paul is doing this. One of two reasons, maybe both. Uh, first off, Paul was likely thinking of, of all of God's goodness to him in the city of Corinth. All of the wonderful things that had happened had come out of the difficulties there. And it seems that in the year and a half that Paul spent amongst these people, 
that they softened and that he built a relationship with them and it seemed to become this healthy place where the spirit of God was present and the people were faithfully representing Jesus in that city. And Paul just seems overwhelmingly thankful as he leaves. He looks back and he's just like, yes, God did it again. And at the front, it seems so difficult, it seems so hard, but at the, at the back end of it, he looks back, he's like, I'm thankful. And so he takes this Nazarite vow. And as he's sailing through uh, the city, stops off in King Korea, and what you would do is you would shave your head, you would take the hair, uh, and you would burn it on the altar, which would fill the space with a terrible smell, I imagine. Um, but he does this, and I think there's another reason as well. I don't think it's just simply this, um, this exercise in thankfulness. Um, Paul is also going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the, the church in Jerusalem at this time, before, um, sort of, before it became sort of filled with Gentiles, the Jewish church was this place um, where they, they, were, they were followers of Jesus, they were Christians, but they were very much living by the law. Um, and, and they had this general idea. They had had this huge council and talked about it, and, and we talked about this, and they decided, okay, we're going to let the Gentiles in, and what will replace works will be their faith will replace their works, and that's how they can be included in the church. Um, but there still seemed to be this racial tension between the two. And Paul is going to Jerusalem, where he's going to meet with the churches there um, who are not yet fully bought into Gentile inclusion in their space. They're not really all that interested. They've been God's people since the very beginning. And they have a hard time imagining that these latecomers are going to come in and get all the blessings that they are, even without doing any of the, the circumcision or the Sabbath or the, the dietary restrictions, with all that. And they're frustrated. And they seem to be very hesitant to enter into relationship with these other churches. But that's what we must have, is all churches looking themselves, not as separate churches, but as different expressions of one church. It's called the Catholic Church, not Catholic as with the capital C, Catholic as in the word universal. It's one universal church that we are all a part of, all of our brothers and sisters. Um, and so Paul is going there, and he's working on his relationship with them because they don't like that he's working with Gentiles. And so Paul decides um, to give the, the appearance, basically, that he's still one of them, living by the law. He doesn't enter into the space in power. I mean, we know, we know it wasn't necessary. We know Paul didn't believe that you had to do these laws, that you had to wear the, the, the fringes on your, on, your, on, your, on your tunic, that you had to cut your hair a certain way, not round the edges of your hair, put the, put the prayer box on your head. And he knows all of this is no longer required because of the work of, of Christ, but still, but still, when it comes time for him to enter into community with these people, he does it. He gathers up all, it's like he gathers up all of his privilege, and he says, I can do this. I, I have the right to walk in and say, no. Why? Because I have freedom. I don't have to. God has set me free, and I will not do this, and you can't make me. Um, I'm just practicing my faith and my religion. Paul doesn't do any of this. Instead, he enters into a space powerlessly because he goes representing Christ, who entered into our world powerlessly. And so he takes it, and he puts it all aside. He pushes it all aside, and he shaves his hair, and he begins to practice the disciplines and the rituals of the Jewish community, the Jewish Christian community, and he enters into a relationship with them. This is how he enters into their space. Not arrogantly, 
not in power. He doesn't come in arrogance. He doesn't demand that others conform and just accept him as he is. He's not coercive. He, uh, he moves amongst these different cultures of the world as someone who both loves these cultures and, and floats above them somehow. Like he can move in and out of Gentile and Jewish, Roman and Greek culture seamlessly. He walks into Athens and there's all these idols and he talks about them and he reads their poets and he reads their literature. He's not afraid to, earn, to learn the things that they're doing. He's not like creating this. He's not in a culture war. He walks into a space and he walks amongst these people as if he loves them, as if he wants to engage and he receives their information and he mulls it over and he responds and he even uses some of their words and when he talks about Christ and directs their, their attention away from their idols and towards Jesus. This is a different way. We have a lot we can learn. If you look at the constant tensions right now amongst the evangelical church between the church and the culture, we cannot win a culture war. You can't do it. It doesn't work. We must, again, become a missional people who understand how God sent the Spirit, how God sent His Son into a space. We must study that, and we must learn to embody it as we enter into the world, not be this offender of cultures. We must enter in learning, loving, respecting, because these cultures, the people feel it represents them. And we enter representing Christ, who loves them. There must be a time and a space where these two, these two parties are bodily in the same space together, loving each other, listening, entering into a relationship and being transformed by each other. The spirit is there in all of it, okay? Um, Paul is able to live amongst these different types of people without offense. We see him amongst Gentiles living this way. He doesn't offend. We see him moving amongst the Jews and, and sort of becoming this chameleon. And he even talks about this. I mean, um, when acting missionally in the world, the Christian must always enter into a space powerlessly. You have neither the answers that they seek you, nor the power to fix them. All you have is the presence of Christ. Christ is the one who has all of these answers, who has the ability to bring healing and, and to fix the things that are broken and bring repair and, and a wholeness and flourishing. Again, you do not. You are merely a tool, an instrument in the hands of God, and you enter into this space without any of the power. The scissors don't have the power. You are the scissors, all right? Like, and you're entering into the space, and, and you're just allowing yourself to be used by God to create the thing and the space and the conversations that need to be there. God is already at work everywhere you go. Your responsibility is to be aware of it and to manifest that work as the presence of Jesus, to take part in it, to see it, to take part in it. You are his instrument, not his hero. Um, Here's the thing. When you begin to receive sort of this idea that you are not the hero, you are the instrument, it really does set you free. There was for many, many years, um, probably for over a decade, um, I would get up to preach, and I would have a terrible stomachache. I'd have terrible dry mouth. Um, and, and people talk about, oh, that's the butterflies. That means what you're doing is important, this and that. No, it's, it's, it's anxiety and stress, and it's not healthy. Um, <laughs> And I would get home and I would fall asleep and sleep the rest of the day and then wake up, eat dinner, and go to sleep the rest of the night. Like, um, and we were doing two services. We were talking about a three, a third service, BC, right, before COVID. Um, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot and everyone's burnt out and everyone's exhausted. Um, and then, right, honestly, right, the week before COVID hit, I was, in, I was in Colorado at a songwriter's thing, gathering with, with some songwriters, and the president of our denomination was there, John Stumbo, the head of the, the, the Christian Missionary Alliance. And he had this conversation with me. He goes, he literally asked, he said, does anyone here, like, when you get up to preach, how many of you are pastors and some of us raise their hands? He goes, when you get up to preach, like, 
You ever get like a stomachache, like a really, really bad stomachache? Like you want to run out of the room and go to the bathroom real bad. And you're like, oh yeah, me, so, sorry, sorry about that. Um, and, and he's like, I want to talk to you about that. He's like, I had that for many, many years. He goes, that is a sign that you believe you're somehow in control. That's a sign that you're trying to put on a show, you're trying to impress, you're trying to move people. And I want to set you free, I want to make clear, you have no, no ability to do any of this. You have none. You are a tool, you are standing. What you need to do is be present with the people. Just be there. Just be you, let God be God and let God speak through you. And throw it all away. Stop caring. People don't like the show, remind them it's not a show. If people don't like the worship, remind them it wasn't for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, enter into a space powerlessly. That's how we should all enter into the space with each other. If there's something you're unhappy about, you are powerless really to fix it. God can fix it, but God wants to use us collectively. And so you must enter into a space powerlessly and have conversations with people and say, is this what God is doing? Is this what God is doing? And we discern together. Churches were never intended to have this massive hierarchy from top down. It was always meant to be communal. And so why does Paul do this? Why does Paul enter into his space in this way? How can he do that? Well, he gets this from Jesus. There's this creed in the book of Philippians chapter 2. It's one of the most ancient church creeds we have, and Paul writes it down. He learns it from the church. I would argue likely from Priscilla, and he writes it down. He says this. He says, who being, he's talking about Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be uh, used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what do we do? We do not consider ourselves as being in the place of power. Jesus decided not even to do that. He's like, this isn't something that I need to use to change these. I don't need to gather up all of my power to bring healing and change to the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them how it enters in. Um, we become nothing. We become servants. We become the lowest in the space. Uh, we become as human as they are. As human as they are. No privilege at all. That's how you bring the work of Jesus into somebody's life. By putting aside all of your privilege. And joining them where they are. Um, Paul understands this. When you read the words of Paul, Watch what he says. Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I, though I myself am not under the law. Here he says, I have, the, I have the right, and I don't use it. I don't exercise it, because I care about these people. He says, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, which is the Spirit. If you've been paying attention, the law becomes the presence of the Spirit. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. He even admits that like, so that I might save some. He's at, it's, not, it's not in his ability. We might save some. We might. We might not. It's not up to Paul. God will save who God's going to save. Um, and so as Paul moves from Gentile world back to the church in Jerusalem here, which is obviously 100% Jewish church in the city of Jerusalem, Paul um, puts on his Jewish outfit again and enters into the, to their midst. All right? Um, because he has a plan. 
And he knows that God doesn't act coercively. God acts invitationally. God is not, um, by the way, that's why we don't have this long list of things that you need to behave, ways you need to behave before you join the church. We have the Nicene Creed. I want you to understand it and affirm the Nicene Creed. Um, because you can't coerce people. You can't tell people, oh, no, no, you're out until you align. You, this, 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 and this, and then you're in. You can't do that. That is not what the table is for. It's not my table. Yeah. It's Jesus' table. Amen. Everybody's welcome at the table, yeah. right? So, Finn, Sermon 2. <laughs> Act 3. <laughs> the offering. All right, so there's a passage here. I mean, how far are we? Uh, we're good. All right, here we go. I mean, there's no second service anymore. What are we going to do? Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church uh, and then went down to Antioch. So he goes up and he greets the church uh, and then he leaves. Um, why? What's this about? If you look at a map, this does not work. Like it doesn't. He goes up and he greets the church. What's happening? So there's really no reason for Paul to swing up to Jerusalem during this time. It's not, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a part of his Gentile mission at all. Um, it's neither on the way um, nor in need of a new church, let alone a Gentile church because there's none there that would join. Um, and there was actually something else happening here. Uh, so as you read through the writings of Paul, Paul's letters in the New Testament go from, the way they're ordered is bizarre. They're ordered from the longest book to shortest book. Somehow, some Bible scholar decided, do you want to do these chronologically? No, let's do it by size. Um, and so, but as you read through them, they're out of order, but as you read through them, you can see this constant theme recurring. I want to read you some of these passages. We won't do the whole thing. Um, it says now about, in verse 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people. The Lord's people is the Jewish people, obviously, and there's a collection he's taking up for them. Um, uh, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So the Galatians are doing it as well, and he wants the Corinthians to do it. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Save it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then when I arrive, I, get, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So they're sending a monetary gift to Jerusalem um, from these two cities, okay? And there's more. Um, the second letter to Corinth, um, he talks about Titus. He says, Titus was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry this offering, uh, which we administer in order to honor the Lord. Okay, so Titus is going to carry this thing, um, and they're going to take it to Jerusalem. Anything else we need? We want to avoid any... Okay, we're good. Let's go to the next one. Um, Romans 15. I am on my way to Jerusalem. He keeps teasing it. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I've got the offering uh, in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia... Uh, we're pleased to make a contribution. So we, now we have four, five, six churches in different cities that have piled on and throwing money in this, in this massive gift for the church in Jerusalem um, to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Why, hold on, pause. Why are there poor people in Jerusalem? Well, we learned back, and I think it was Acts chapter 12, this prophet comes out and he says there's going to be a huge famine in that area. And so the church in Jerusalem, they're starving to death as well. Uh, and so there's a lot happening here. Uh, they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles, pay attention here, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' uh, spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessing. So there's obviously two different needs. There is this tangible physical need because they're starving, um, and then there's this kind of spiritual thing where there's like this exchange that needs to happen, and it's got like a spiritual connotation. What is this? What's happening? Um, I've talked about this a little before, but I've never gone into a lot of detail. Paul is going around to all the Gentile churches. He's taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Um, why? 
This stems from the ancient view of grace. Uh, in the modern church, the, the modern sort of evangelical understanding of grace, um, here, I drew a picture. It's grace, right? It's a gift. Um, I used to draw tons of pictures, and I just don't draw much anymore. I'll try to get back into it. This, this is some of my best, my best work. Okay. Actually, the next one's probably my best work. Um, so, grace, right? Someone gives a gift, and you're like, oh, all right, surprise, ah, oh, a gift. And that's the end of it, right? That's what grace is. Well, that's how we understand it. That is actually not how they understood it in the first century at all. Grace in the ancient world, charis, is this, uh, it was a cultural sort of contract thing. It was, it was a way of, of being that is really fascinating if you actually study it. So what would happen is uh, a gift would always be given from a high-status person to a low-status person, always. Um, and the idea was they would offer something that this person over here could never attain on their own. They couldn't receive. They were incapable of it because they're low status. They couldn't sit at the table with high-status people, none of it. And so you have this gift from a wealthy person going to a, a poor person, and the response, it's not just a one-way gift. There is this sort of cultural requirement now that there is a response, and the response is that this person tells everyone what you did, right? They go around saying, they gave me a gift, this person praise them. Glory to them. And you raise their status in the community. By them giving you a gift, you were expected to return in some way. If you had money, you would return possibly even with a bigger gift, right? We'll talk about that in a second. That gets interesting in the ancient world. Um, But if it's to a poor person, their role was then to sing your praises, Uh, to sing the praises of the glory of the Lord, as the Christians would put it, because this is how we talk about our relationship with God, right? He did something for us that we can never do on our own. Our response is worship. That's Roman culture. That's what that is. The Christians are using this all, all the time to do their work. And it, the reason we still do this kind of stuff today is because they did it. And it's just, it, it was, it was, it's never been really picked apart and examined. And I think we should keep doing it. I think it's important. And so there's this understanding. If they give you a gift, you respond by singing their praises, lifting. It's, it's you're entering into this relationship now. And they will, their gift will keep flowing and your gift will keep flowing. So... Paul wants to join two churches together that can't be brought together. You have these Jewish Christians, you know, these Gentile Christians, and the Jews refused to accept the Gentiles into the church. What's Paul going to do? Paul is a contextual theologian. He looks around at what he's got, and he says, how can I use what I have here to tell the story of God and to bring people together? I know what I'll do. I'm going to use the grace relationship in Roman culture, in Greco-Roman culture, to bring these two people together. This is going to be brilliant. Uh, this was such an important thing in the ancient world that oftentimes wealthy people would gift gifts that were so big to other wealthy people that they would go bankrupt, the person you gave the gift to, because they will not be one-upped. And your honor is now on the line. What are you going to do? I gave you a million dollars. Oh, yeah? I'm giving you five million dollars. And it would just go back and forth, bigger and bigger and bigger, until one of them went bankrupt. This literally happened all the time. This is what rich people would do to each other. <laughs> and the poor people are just sitting there just watching. Like, yes, this is, this is crazy. Um, and, <laughs> uh, like, there's so much there. And so what Paul's trying to do, he's getting this massive collection together from the Gentiles to take to the Jewish Christians. Why? To force them into relationship together. It's like the least coercive but, like, most coercive thing. Like, it's like this thing where you're like, I have a bunch of money for you. And now they have to make a choice. They can receive it joyfully, and they're poor, 
So they can sing the praises of the Gentile church. Or they can reject it and not enter into a relationship together, which is a slap in the face, which is a pushback, which is a, I want nothing to do with you. Okay? This is what, in Paul's mind, this is the solution. Paul's very creative with his solutions. We till you get to Romans. He talks about a lot more interesting things that he does. Um, but the Jewish Christians, they had such a hard time with this. And this is where, it actually gets really sad because... Um, when you actually go back and you look at what happened, there's literally no, not a shred of evidence that the Jews actually received the gift. There's not a shred of evidence that they did. There's, there seems to be evidence that they rejected it. And not, I mean, 30 or 40 years later, there was no church there anymore. Of course, AD 70, the, the whole city is ransacked, the temple's burned, and they're gone. But it appears that the pride of these people kept them from entering into a relationship with people who they considered lower than them. Even though they were poor, they considered everyone else lower because of their, their culture and their pride. Um, the biggest hindrance, guys, to the true work of the gospel is always arrogance and pride and, and power amongst God's people. The desire to even hold on to power is corruptive to the church. It should be this thing where like, oh, it's not mine at all. All the power goes to God. All of it. I give the power, all the power to the Spirit. But you can make this decision. I'm giving you the power to make this decision. Thank you, but I'm going to let the Spirit of God lead us and make this decision. I'm going to enter into some discernment with you guys and let God decide. Not me. Our pride gets in the way. The church in Jerusalem sees themselves as the pinnacle, the archetype of what the church should be, and pride is something that you cannot awaken somebody from. They have to fall from it. You can't awaken somebody from pride. They just simply have to fall. And at the, you, you meet them at the bottom. That's the only thing you can do. They don't see the Gentile Christians as truly God's people, and they don't want to accept them. They want God's people to be this pure thing that looks like this and does this, and that this is how people know us. We have we have the Jerusalem temple. It's one of the wonders of the world. We have all of this, and I will never let go of this. And God says, if you have things that you will not let go of in your culture, things that are yours, that, that your identity, and that's who you are, you really cannot follow Jesus. You can't, because Jesus is moving away from those things. He's moving us to his own kingdom, a whole new way of being in the world. And Paul does everything he can to bring these two sides together. And one side is eager. The Gentiles are eager, even constantly like, yes, we would love to give a gift to them. This will be amazing. We're going to enter into a relationship with them. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Maybe one day we'll find out. I hope we do. I also hope we find that third letter to Corinthians. Anyways, but God... God God can do nothing with a heart that, also, that refuses to humble itself. It's useless. God calls, God invites, God points, God beckons you into your future that he has for you. Whether or not you receive it is, uh, is outside of God's control. It's up to you. God is not coercing you and making demands of you. He's inviting you into something far beyond anything you could imagine. You can, you can keep your status and your privileged places at the tables of the world and uh, tables of the rich and the powerful and 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 and. And sometimes the people uh, uh, that, that God is calling you to work with, they threaten all of that status. You have all, of the, all the access to all this power in the world, but God is maybe calling you 
bringing somebody into your life that you're like, if I spend time with them, what's going to happen to my image over here? Exactly what God wants to happen to your image. That they will see you the way they saw him. And how did they see him? As, as the divine presence in the world that gave up all images of power. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. At one point, Jesus even takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Mount Horeb, I think it was called. And there's this moment where these prophets, these, these, these ancient prophets, I believe it was uh, Abraham and Elijah. It might have been Moses. I don't, at the moment, I'm blanking. Um, it's in the book of Matthew. Uh, and these prophets appear in these white clothes, and Jesus' clothes turn white, and it's this moment of glory, and like, it's, it's amazing, and it's beautiful, and there's three apostles there with him, disciples, and Peter's like, oh, I'm going to build like a, like a little booth, and we can stay here, and we can dwell on the Mount of Transfiguration. We can dwell on the mountaintop, and Jesus says, no, this is actually not where my glory is, is seen. I brought you up here so you could see how you see glory, these high places with white robes and shining lights and it's just the lights and the fog, the, the megachurch, right? Like, it's the whole thing. Us sometimes, like this thing that we all desire and we want, like this big show and this emotional, this emotional high. And God says, and, and, and we're here and we have all this and it's a gift to you. But if you want to see my glory, it's not on this mountaintop, it's on the Mount of Calvary. That's where you see the glory of God. Stripped naked, all of the power and privilege removed from his body his clothing, so he's shameful. His beard, the symbol of masculinity would, in a patriarchal society, this is what made you, give you authority. You would never, a man would never shave his beard. Uh, perhaps they shouldn't. Um, and, and they ripped it out, taking away his even masculine image to the world. All the power that he had, gone. All the privilege that he ever, that anyone would ever grasp before, removed. And he says, this is how you should see my father. This is how you should understand God. And this is how you should order your life. And to this very day, we do everything we can to explain it all away and say, I just, I want to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. Of course you do. Nobody wants to be on the Mount of Calvary, but that is where you see the glory of God. That is where you see it. It's not here. It's not at the mountaintop. It's the valley. It's the, it's the place of the skull, not the place of the shining light. And so the person that you are afraid to associate with that may just be, they, they may actually just be the greatest gift that God has ever given anyone. And you may or may not receive them into your life. Um, but I would argue that is what God is doing. Calling you to open your eyes and see people you've never seen and to enter into transformational relationship them, with them. Not in a way that says, well, I have money, and they, didn't, they need money. And you enter into their life, and you give them money. Not, this is, that's power, that's coercion, that is you holding on to your power. Enter into their space as they do, as best as you can. Don't enter in with your intellect, talking down to them. Don't enter in with your money, flashing it upon them. Gather where they gather. Be present where they are present. Let them lead the conversation. Listen. Learn what is wrong. Learn the real problems, not just the problems that you as a, as, as a privileged member of society with money and places to go and stuff to do. Not as someone from your position can look and say, well, here's all the things that they need. You're going to fashion them in your image. We're not here to do that. 
We're here to find out what God is doing in their life and to take part in that. It only happens by physical bodily relationship with them. And so as we move throughout our week, I want us to ponder Priscilla and Aquila. I want us to ponder Paul's haircut. I want us to ponder Paul's tent-making operation. I want us to ponder um, Paul's gift for the church in Jerusalem. Contextualize this in your life. What is Paul doing? What are they doing that you should be doing? Just think about it. Begin to pray about it and order your life in this way. And that's all I have for you today. Why don't you stand with me? And uh, we're going to do the Lord's Prayer here and, uh, and close out our service. Nice and loud with me. Come on. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. Grace and peace. Have the greatest Sunday of your life.